The Macrofab Engineering Podcast Design Contest, sponsored by Mazer Electronics, is currently going on. The topic is useless machines. We have cash prizes up to $1,000 for the winners. The deadline is August 10th and is closing fast. More information can be found on macrofab.com slash blog. Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 184. So, Parker, what's up with your chair? So, I'm in Vegas right now for DEF CON. And this chair, because I've been doing work, uh, Macrofab work, uh, like in the mornings usually, and then like afterwards I go hang out with people. This chair is built incorrectly. No, no, here's here's the thing. Like Parker and I were were chatting before the podcast, uh, you know, getting all of our notes ready, and he kept mentioning like, "Oh, this chair, this chair." I was like, "Dude, the chair is built wrong. You got to talk about it on the podcast." Yeah. So what 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 is built wrong about it is it's the top part, the seat part is put on backwards from the base. So wait, was it, it was it designed incorrectly or just assembled incorrectly? This one is assembled incorrectly because I went to one of my friends' rooms and it's the chair is fine. Because I'm like, you sit in the chair and it's weird because like it's tilting you forward, like the the butt part is like tilted forward, so you you wanted to just slide out of the chair. Oh, that's and awful. then if you click the little thing that allows you to like you know lean back, the chair actually leans forward. <laughs> and so it's like an ejector seat style lever <laughs> like the uh uh the the bond seat uh the the passenger seat in the bond car right where you just press a button and it shoots them out yes except it just puts you on the floorboards throws you forward right? <laughs> yeah it just tips you forward well i'm gonna be there in two days uh yes. i'll be there thursday evening uh so i'll have to check out this chair and and, and identify yeah, all of the engineering issues with it Yes, I actually was thinking about flipping it over and just like fixing it, <laughs> or I can just call room service and be like, "This chair sucks. Give me a new one." That's what most people would do. The <laughs> fact that you even considered like fixing it for them—that <laughs> 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 means something. Yeah, which means no one's actually complained about this chair before. It's kind of weird, or that it's new, right? No, it's pretty grungy. <laughs> Why don't you just get a new one? You've been dealing with it for a couple of days, right? Yeah, I've been dealing since uh, for two days now. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's awesome. Okay, so what you what you been jamming on? So the <laughs> my phone just was like, "Oh, do you mean that you want to talk to me?" It's like, "No, Google." <laughs> <laughs> um, been working on Pentar a bit. The um, Rev 1, I think we said last week it's working. We have a pinball machine flipping with it. Uh, so I started working on like the auxiliary stuff that we'll need, like LED light boards. Um, so we're using those APA 102C new 260s. And we're making them in like strips. Uh, we, we played with this concept last year, but I think we're finally going to go forward with it. And so... Most inserts in pinball machines have a like set offset. It's like an inch and a quarter or something like that. And so if you design your play field with that in mind, then you can use just like pre-built strips of LEDs 
is what we're thinking. When you mean offset, you mean from like the bottom of the play field to whatever. No, no, like from center to center between the inserts. Like oh, the lights. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So center to center is about an inch and a quarter uh, on most machines. And so if you design with that in mind, and what we're going to do is basically build a whole panel of LEDs, but the pitch of the LEDs is 1.25 inches over this panel. And so then, and they're all connected. So you just cut what you need. So if you need like four, you cut four out. Yeah. And so we'll just use like the pizza cutter to do that. You know, V score only on one side of the board. You know, um, funny, funny story about pizza cutter. Uh, we have one at, at, at WMD, but we actually don't deal with uh, V scores very often. Uh, there's a couple customers that request them. So we do it for that. Um, so I sit on uh, one side of a warehouse and and actually i'm kind of all by myself way away from a lot of other people so there's not a lot of like noises that happen back there other than the noises that i create and that mm -hmm. my machines create back there so i'm pretty used to what to hearing what I, what i normally hear back there especially with the cnc running well i'm walking back from g grabbing a cup of coffee and i hear this like awful like grinding noise that is just like Oh shit! What's the CNC doing? Because it was running a program, and I'm I'm <laughs> I'm expecting to walk back there and see the thing like twitching on the ground, like trying to I don't know. But uh, somebody went back there and brought brought our pizza cutter, uh, V score cutter machine, and they and they were they were just back there doing that. I was like, holy shit! You scared the hell out of me. Because <laughs> those pizza cutters don't make a really nice sound when they're cutting no, it's pizza. <laughs> yeah yeah it's really awful so. It's a diamond encrusted blade going through fiberglass. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's not really designed to sound very good, right? Yeah, and that's that's actually that machine is why you had to have components with a certain amount of space between it and like the edge of the board. That blade is not like the guard on it is not you know super skinny, so you need to have like what is it like twenty mils or something like that away from the board edge. Yeah, which in general, if you're doing V scores, you would do anyway. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, no, you need to have enough room that you like. Yeah, you can cut it, but you can also clear the the pizza cutter extra crap, right? Yeah, I think it's a guard or something. It's basically something that's on the edge that to help you align line the boards. Yeah, it looks like the kind of it looks like a, a, a miniature version of the guard that you'd see on a table saw. Yes. Um, because if you don't, then your ceramic capacitor will just pop right off. <laughs> so I, I, I saw, I saw pictures of, uh, the Pinotar. It looks awesome. Um, yeah, you, thanks. Guys, um, you guys did like a version from an Osh Park board, right? Cause it was all purple. Yeah. We, we went with an Osh Park board just for like, we were running up against time schedules and we needed like boards in like three or four days. <laughs> so we did that way. But the, um, funny thing is. It ended up not being cheaper at all. <laughs> to do Osh Park? Yeah. So we got three. So this, uh, so a Pinotar and singles at Macrofab was like, if you remove all the through hole, so it's just SMT stuff and singles, it's like 550 bucks. Yeah, makes sense. It was 550 bucks to get three Osh Park boards. Just the boards. Just the boards. Um, granted, you have three of them, and then you have to add all the component costs on top of that. So, 
Yeah, it ended up not. I was actually kind of disappointed how expensive it was to do it that way. <laughs> Oastpark for for large format boards is really expensive. Yeah, um, but we did get them in like four days, and then um, you know Ben took like two days to build one. So you know you'll, our lead time was like six days. So that was pretty nice. Right. Yeah. But you had six days full attention. One thing. Right. One thing. Yeah. <laughs> But but it's actually functioning. I think I think you talked about that last week. But uh, but you actually got it pretty much all working, right? Yeah, it's actually it was yeah. We only had one hardware issue, and we just jumpered it with a big gauge of wire. <laughs> hey, it works. Right? So yeah, and our uh, SMT FETs work great. I'm pretty happy with those. Yeah, um, cool. That was kind of a we didn't know if they were going to work out too well, um, mainly because most. Actually, almost every single pinball platform out there uses like IRL 540s. I think Stern uses something else now, though. But they're all like TO220 style through hole stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we went with just a you know SMT package and tried to make that work, and it worked great. Yeah, I think the trick was we found one that was um, that has a low enough on resistance. And um, so it just keeps the heat down. Have you have, have you started like measuring heat? No, no. But we basically we're just making sure like when it's on, it's not like heating the board up a lot because um, you're switching them really fast in some some cases. Yeah. Right. And then we did actually like calculate out how fast they would actually turn on for. Right. You know, we did that calculation, that simulation. A stupid fast. Yeah. Way, way faster than pinball needs. <laughs> Yeah, way faster than pinball needs, and the and it doesn't take a long time for them to turn on, which was good. Oh no, it should um, be pretty. because so, you're you're you basically want to get into saturation as fast as possible with a MOSFET. Right, you want yeah, you want to go through the linear zone because you're burning an extra heat. Uh, yeah. In that in that area, and, uh, and so, you, you put uh, larger gate resistors on all of them, right? Because I think originally it had like ten ohms or something like that. Yeah, let me see. Gonna... I think you bumped it up to 1K or so, is, is sort of where we started. I think that's where, like in our simulation, we bumped it up that far to kind of act a little bit as um, current limiting for the for the inrush uh, charging. Yeah, because we didn't want to burn, because we're using 74HC595s to drive these things. What, what we were worried about was, you know, you only had 20 milliamps of current to drive them. And are you going to burn up your five nine five? Right, right. So we ch- we, we chose an appropriate resistance. Was it a hundred? Okay, uh, yeah. Hundred ohms. We started out with ten. Right, and then but and then kept creeping it up. Yeah, and then we did try one k, but it would it that slowed it down. Like it was in the linear range for a long time. Yeah, but but you didn't. <laughs> um, you haven't actually put one k's on the board, right? No, we okay. only did. Uh, we built them with this 100k, uh, not 100, 100, 100, ohm. Yeah, 100 ohm. Yeah, yeah. 100k would probably not turn on. <laughs> just take longer. <laughs> It'd just always be in a linear range and just cook those MOSFETs off. No, it would eventually charge it up, right? Oh well, I mean, if, if you're sending it like really fast pulse, then maybe not, right? Yeah. Um, so I got that going on. Um, the uh, I've been working on starting the next project that's going to be sponsored by Mauser. It's that IoT compressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've been talking about that for a long time. <laughs> yep, 
Yeah, this is a project that we started back in like episode 68 and we're 184 now. Yep. Um, so over 100 episodes ago, we started this project. Woo. We actually built a circuit board and some code and it actually did work. It just we never finished it. Um, so basically, we're going to start over on it and basically fix some of the issues that the original version had. Um, so some of the things I want to do is um, the big thing is like finding an enclosure that works better because <laughs> before it was just a project box mm-hmm. and goop, like compressor goop and oil and crap would just get in there and just like foul it up. Man, go and uh, look at our friends. Uh, what is it? Uh, Takachi or Takashi? Yeah, they have. Man, I like their enclosures. They got really cool stuff. Yeah, so I want something that's ruggedized, but panel mount, so you can like bolt it to the the compressor and stuff. And it has to be sealed as well, so that the circuit board doesn't get all messed up. Right. And right. then, um, like gasketed and stuff. Yeah, and it only needs two cable glands, so you need power in, and then actually you need three power in, um, so the circuit board gets powered up, and then you need the pressure transducer. And so I'm going to use the same one because it worked really good, which was the um, PX3AN2BS250PAAAX. Um, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, write that down, people, in your, <laughs> in your notebook. Um, it's a Honeywell pressure transducer heavy-duty guy, and um, it works really well. It was really easy to get set up for on the microcontroller. Um, so that, that needs to have a gland on it. And then the other one is the controls for the solid state relay. Um, and I actually never really tested that solid state relay. So that needs to be tested before um, we spin another board for this. Is it is this one of those uh, solid state relays that are like for brewing, like the brick ones? It's kind of like a brick one. Um, it's a... Uh, yeah, go ahead and say the name. Oh, it's a 6225AXXSZS-DC3. So it's a DC-powered, like, 3 volts turns it on, which is really cool. So basically you can drive it directly from a, the uh, microcontroller. Right, right, right. Okay, this is this is basically a brick one. It's just got a fancy cover on it. Yep. Cool. And um, it's got it's the same, like, whatever that standard mounting bracket is. Mm-hmm. It's that. And... So this solid state relay is basically going to be on all the time. And its entire job is just to turn the compressor off if the control brains decides, hey, something's not right here. Let's turn it off. Um, It's not the compressor IoT is not there to control the compressor, though. The compressor is pressure management. Like it's a pneumatic system. Um, It like pressures up and a little little tiny um, baffle moves and it trips the the pressure transducer that's in there. Right. Um, it's kind of old school style, but a lot of compressors still run on that way. That way. It's cheap um, and easy, right? reli- Yeah, I think it's just super reliable. Um, so we're just going to let that do its thing. But this is here for basically to prevent the compressor from killing itself because it's only supposed to have like a 10% duty cycle. And if there's a leak in the line or someone leaves a line open downstream or 
a copper tube on the intercooler breaks because that's happened before many of times. I, hey, I was I was about to say you need to you need to tell the story of why this project even began. Yeah. So the oh man, this was like two years ago. So two years ago, we had just moved to new fab, and I'm going to guess what happened is like the compressor got knocked and moved when someone moved it. Like the two, because the tube that comes off the compressor is copper that goes into the intercooler. I guess to help with um, cooling. That's the only thing I can think of is why it's made out of copper. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. It work hardens. That's what I know about copper. Yeah. And that's like the worst thing is vibrating like crazy <laughs> right. between like th- it's, one end of it is fixed on the intercooler. Yeah. And the other one is on the compressor head that's vibrating. Yeah, and it's like and it's broken again. So I I don't maybe it's not even just like moving it. Maybe it's meant to be broken though. Maybe there's some kind of reason behind that. Yeah, well the thing is when I went to go pick up the spare part, like the guys like we never like sell these spare parts. Oh, okay. Thought it was really well. I remember. Okay, so we came in on a Monday. And the compressor room was like 300 degrees because the compressor yeah, was, it was like running. Yeah, a sauna in there. Yeah, it was running full duty cycle because this tube had broken and it wasn't shutting off. And it was like a super custom copper tube that has a 90 degree bend in it and a flare fitting on the end. Of yeah, that. and the flare fitting was a weird, it's not a weird size, but it's like a size that you can't really get a tool for. No, and this was not a Home Depot kind of thing, you know. Yeah, most flare kits are for like automotive stuff. It's like the max size is like maybe three eighths of a flare, like for a fuel line. This is like a full on like three quarter inch <laughs> copper tube. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Well, and and the, so the whole thing is the manufacturing floor is without pressure, and when you have machines like a pace jetter that runs on pressure, uh, yeah. then then you know people are starting to scramble. And Parker and I are like, how the hell are we going to fix this thing? And like the yeah. floor's down because of a copper tube, you know? Yep. Luckily, there was a shop in town that had it. Yeah. So, yeah, I drove over there, picked up the tube, came back, popped it in, and it worked great mm. for two more years. <laughs> right, right, right. And then actually about five months ago, the intercooler failed. Ooh, nice. So, yeah, I don't know. The intercooler just developed a hole in it. Um, and it was on the other side of where the copper tube goes in. I don't know why it failed. It basically just developed a hole. And um, so we had to order the intercooler because that place that we originally bought those parts from, they didn't have the intercooler in stock. So we had to order the intercooler. Um, but they had the parts basically so I could unconvert my the compressor from the intercooler style to non-intercooler style. Basically, it just dumps from the compressor right into the tank. Um, and so I bought those parts because I get them right there right away. And do the conversion and then convert back. <laughs> yeah. Then like three days later when the intercooler showed up, I converted back. Nice. Um, so I have all those parts now. The thing is, you think these parts would be expensive, too, but they're not they're like they're like 20 bucks a piece. And mm. The intercooler is only like 100 bucks. It's like compared to the overall package, I guess um, they're just very inexpensive. But um, well, but the, uh, so so all of this is the reason why you even wanted to make this device. To be, uh, the original thought was to just have like a vibration sensor to detect if the thing was on and vibrating yes. for longer than it should be because you know it ran for 
60 hours straight or something. Yeah, we have no idea how long it was running for. Long enough to cook that room. It was hot. Yeah, it was hot in that room. Um, so yeah, so it's going to have a... It has a like an accelerometer on it, basically, just to say, is it vibrating? Um, I actually was thinking about changing that out and just putting like a like a like a little mercury tilt switch in no, there. Just if it if it's bouncing around, if that's bouncing around. Then yeah, it, that's even easier uh, to read because instead of having like um, basically sample and figure out if you're vibrating or not, basically the magnitude of the acceleration is changing. But the thing with the accelerometer is you also can get frequency from it. So you can say, is it running well or not? Like, what is what should it be vibrating like? <laughs> Does your compressor have a knock? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's a pressure transducer, so you can just read the pressure. Um, and that's just a data point I want to know. So basically, it's like, is it running for a long time? If yes, shut down is what it is well and you got this pressure transducer though you're gonna put that in there somewhere right yeah yeah well that's just reading the 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 tank pressure got it um i guess technically you can figure out if it's running with that like if the pressure is actually changing Mm -hmm. but you know i think doing it by vibration is probably the easiest way to like actually determine if it's running or not I guess you can actually do a you can do a current sense on the power line too. I was just about to say that that's probably the easiest, but that doesn't give you frequency. No. But you could also put a microphone on it and just listen to it, and then determine the the frequency that way. Yeah, that would work. Just take an FFT of it and find your peaks. Yeah, I bet you'd be like majority is sixty hertz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, what is what is that it's a big AC motor on it? Yeah, but, but what is the actual piston running at, or the diet di- the diaphragm or whatever it is? I don't know because it's off a belt. It's not going to be sixty. It's not going to be sixty hertz, is it? I doubt it. Yeah, I don't know. I got to look and see what the co- belt conversion is. Yeah, it's, that would yeah. that would what the re- it's the, di- a, the diameters are different. Yeah, it's a reduction. Because it's, it's a small pulley driving a big pulley that then drives the pistons. So, I don't know what that ratio is. I guess I can look it up. But, um, yeah. Cool. So, that's going to be that project. Yep. Um, so, I'm going to start on that probably next week. Um, and it's going to run the... We're going to still use, like, the particle photon because uh, I already have that stuff. And then uh, the trophy for the contest. Mm, that thing. So I've been learning more uh, Python, and um, it's like the contest ends like this Saturday. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I don't really have anything kind of working for that yet. <laughs> I just been like taking classes and learning how to do it. Yeah. Um. So I did find this um Python GUI called uh that works on the Raspberry Pi called GUI zero. Um, so I've been learning that and made some little tiny, you know, crappy applications and stuff. It's like, you can put an image and then you can change some numbers. And I'm like, perfect. That's what I need to do. And put a button or something on there. Yeah. And so I got that kind of stuff working. And then I was like, okay, that's great. But this thing does need to talk to the internet. So it's actually can do its thing. Which is, you know, it needs to hit that um, Mars weather API endpoint, basically. Right, right. 
Which means that whoever we give it to, they have to connect it to their Wi-Fi, right? Yes. And so I'm like, how do you make that work? Like, is that something like I have to write? Or do we do we make people like plug a keyboard into it to set the Wi-Fi? Because that's kind of lame. Um, and so I found a um, called a uh, like a software package called commit up. That's Wi-Fi connectivity for like IOT devices that are on the Raspberry Pi. And so it works like a um, how most IOT devices like commercial ones work, where when you first plug it in, the device broadcasts a Wi-Fi SSID. You use a computer or your phone to connect to it, and then you feed it um, the Wi-Fi credentials for your house, basically. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, it's really fancy. And so we're going to do that. Yeah, that'll that'll be nice, because then we can just provide the final thing and just they just plug yeah. it in. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's... They set it up. They don't have to open it up and plug a you know keyboard into it to type in a password. <laughs> so, Stephen, how is the enclosure coming along? So, uh, just before the podcast, I showed up to my house and sitting outside was a package with new drill bits and new taps. Uh, reason I got new drill bits and taps is because um, I was going with M3 screws, but they're just a little too big. So um, I'm going to actually take a, uh, uh, I guess, a play from the playbook of uh, Clickspring, the YouTube guy. Um, I'm going to build the entire box with super glue uh, and like position everything and then drill it and tap it and, and just use a torch and I can just break it apart. Uh, huh. j- just so I can like, because I was going to chuck everything up in the mill at work, but I don't want to go back to work and do that. And I can just, <laughs> I can just do it on my bench here if I just, and also with, with super glue, I can kind of glue it up and just make it look really pretty and then drill it that way. And, and, yeah. and what I might end up doing is I'm not mine. What I'll probably end up doing is just glue it and then use a center punch and mark all the holes. And then I can break it all apart, drill it and tap it. So before DevCon, I have to get that done. Yep. Well, it, it's a lot further along than the actual software part. <laughs> yeah, I'll have the the enclosure will be ready for DevCon. That's for sure. Um, I might actually need to get. Well, I think about it. The uh, USB hub, or not hub. The uh, I guess USB extender for the power input. It has two holes. I think they're M two point fives. Uh, well, they're just pass-through holes, uh, so I just need to. I, I guess I'll just tap that with M two point fives, and then we'll, we'll just throw some screws in there. Uh, but all the other ones are like flush, uh, nice screws. So we'll. I think they're Allen heads, so maybe I should bring some Allens. Yeah, that'd probably be I good. Can't, I can't remember what I bought now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be nice if we could assemble it. No, we yeah we'll be we'll be able to assemble it. I'm either going to drill it out tonight or tomorrow night, um, or maybe a combination of both. I I got I I so all of the holes are going to be blind holes for obvious reasons they kind of like drill mm-hmm. into the side of the chassis. Um so I bought some starting taps and some blind hole taps. So some bottoming taps. Yeah. So I think Fancy. all the screws all the screws I bought were 10 8 or 10 millimeter long, something like that. So I'm go- I'm going to drill them out. I bought some uh, actually I bought some cool screws. McMaster had not screws, I'm sorry. Uh drill bits. McMaster had shorty drill bits that are like 
half the size of a regular job jobber drill, uh, okay. but they're but they're stiffer. Um, so I can drill it out that way because I was thinking about it. I might do it by hand, you know, instead uh, of in the press. Instead of a drill press. So I, if I don't do it by hand tonight, then I'll take it to work and do it on a drill press at work tomorrow. We'll find out. Yeah, should be good. Mm-hmm. But that should all work out. I guess I need to bring some super glue also, so we can um, glue the uh, screen the bezel. In. Yeah, the bezel into yeah. the front plate thing. Yep. If if I get it all, if I get it all, maybe I'll glue it up tonight. I don't know. Whatever, I'll figure it out. But uh, I'll send you some pictures when when we're there, and maybe we can post them up for like just the chassis design. Yeah, it's it's beefy. You could throw it off a building, and it'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Not recommended. And it's useless. Uselessly <laughs> beefy, right? Uselessly beefy, yeah. So, so I've I've got a story, I, a quick story I want to tell about why I think the uh, robots are not going to take over anytime soon. Um, I, I think okay. we've, I think we have some time on this, and this comes from a personal experience that happened yesterday. So I get to work, and uh, Mondays I always start off with my weekly maintenance. I have like a maintenance sheet and it's the first thing I do on Mondays after I get coffee, uh, just sort of like it's done. And on, on my CNC, what I need to do is like, we have a Renishaw probe. I have to clean the contacts on that. I clean all the schmutz off of it. Uh, we have a handful of other things. I, I clean the collet, blah, blah, blah. There's all this stuff. Well, I've, I always wipe down the machine and clean off all the, all this stuff inside. But I looked over at the, at the screen which our cnc has a touch screen for all of its stuff i looked over at the screen and i was like oh the screen's kind of dirty you know like it's just got fingerprints and it's got other stuff on it dust and, and crap all over it yeah well yeah and, and aluminum dust. powder and things like that uh and and we've had this this mill for months now and i hadn't cleaned off the screen so i was like oh well it's doing whatever test it was running at the time i was like i'll just wipe down the screen and i had a microfiber cloth that was not wet but it was damp with alcohol so it's just like okay fine i'll just wipe it down with that and on top of that i'm gonna i'm gonna qualify this one more time it has a like transparency film on top of the screen on top of that so i go start wiping down the screen and the cnc flips out just goes goes ape shit. and this little light pops up at the bottom of the screen that that it's a it's a hand with an X on it. So all the touch controls are gone. The machine's throwing errors, all this crap. And I'm like, oh my God, what that what the hell happened? Did I like what what did I do? And the machine stops operating on So I'm going, I've got no controls left over. The the keyboard still works, but I can't you can't actually run the machine from the keyboard. You have to run it entirely from the touch screen. Well the touch screen is no longer accepting touch anymore. <laughs> so I end up I it ends up getting to the point where I have to call their like tech support and he has to like walk me through how I can shut down the machine without using the touch screen and restart it because it thought that someone touched it too much. And and that's yeah. like a that's like a safety precaution if like say it was running and the screen i don't know fell off and it was on the ground and it's like oh it was being touched too much well it, it detected there was an error but it happened because i was cleaning it you know and and this is exactly why i'm like it's a long time before skynet actually will take over you know if <laughs> if a machine of this like caliber <laughs> craps its pants because i cleaned it then uh, yeah we've got some time 
Or, you know, it starts tomorrow. <laughs> Actually, yeah, no, it's really mad that I cleaned it and it starts yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> you come into work yeah. tomorrow and it's just like, Steven. <laughs> I can't let you do that. I can't let you do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it already told me that. I, can't, I, I was no longer allowed to use the touchscreen. I don't know. I, I guess in all reality, what probably happened is, you know, whatever small amount of alcohol actually did get on the screen, it didn't like that for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, now, I can see it in like in like 30 years, like that CNC machine is in court and you're like being tried and, and the 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 judge CNC machine goes, where did the operator touch you? Yeah, it's like everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, show me on this little like inflatable or not uh, this uh, plush CNC. <laughs> show me where he touched you. <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, before this goes more downhill, let me go into some other stuff. Uh, okay. So a few weeks ago, we had Roz on the uh, Josh Roser on the podcast, and uh, he talked about the uh, Transformers that he had designed and what he is designing. Well, he and I have been kind of working together on uh, some, you know, end products for what those Transformers could be used for. He's not just designing Transformers for designing Transformers. Like, he actually wants to use them in something. And it's it's been really fun and interesting because... Um, well, frankly, I, I don't know about you, Parker, but I don't, I don't deal much with designing from scratch transformer circuits a lot of times i just use reference designs or within an industry you kind of have a feel for what's going on or if you do need to buy something from mauser or whatever you can just kind of like piece it together and work it out for whatever your circuit needs to be but i actually have the opportunity now to fine-tune every little piece of a power supply which is kind of cool so instead of just going to mauser and picking whatever voltage tap i need i can go the other direction and tell josh rocher i need this tap with this characteristic to get an end result dc voltage and uh, did you take any power supply classes in college i did not i didn't take any power classes Okay, yeah, you were all embedded all the way, right? Uh, embedded and... Um, like CS stuff. Like video. Video? Yeah, image processing. Nice. Uh, well, so I, I took one power supply class in college that I, I really, really enjoyed. In fact, I've got the textbook right, right here, which I probably, you know, everyone complains about this. That, that $900 textbook? I bet you this was 300 bucks, and, and it's literally, like, printed, like, photocopied. Yeah. It's Xeroxed. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah Xeroxed. And, uh, like, yeah, Kinko's probably assembled this for my professor. Uh, but I still have this because this book is an excellent reference, and it covers half-wave rectifiers, full-wave rectifiers, and then the second half of the semester was all about buck boost and buck boost converters. That's and cool. that was, it was super awesome. It was really great, but um, so I've been referencing that a lot in going forward because now Josh and I are designing some stuff that is moderate voltage, so like 12, 13 volt kind of stuff with a generally healthy amount of current, like between half an amp to an amp kind of thing. Uh, 
and when you when you start playing with that and you start getting into regulation you have to start working from your load backwards to the transformer because you say okay my, i know my load is going to be this i know it's going to draw this much current therefore i have a regulator that regulator has a dropout voltage so i can withstand this much ripple and you know you start working backwards yep. and eventually you get to the point where you say okay my transformer tap needs to be xyz but it's been kind of fun and interesting because i've had to basically work that direction and then tell Josh, I need this tap. And then he has to work forward and say, well, I can give you this tap, but it's going to have XYZ coil resistance. So it's like a balancing game where I have to give so him have something to go back forward. We have to you keep going back and forth. Yeah. It's really interesting because like most, you don't get that option. If you go to, if you go to Mauser and you just look for a transformer, you get a tap and you're, you're that's it. You're done. And if you're trying to manage wasted heat, and extra power um there's 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 not going to be a perfect tap for you if you're just searching transformers out there but if you get one custom wound for you now you can play a completely different game where you really have to start thinking about all of that and what's cool about it is most okay so if you go look for a transformer or go spec one uh, a lot of times you'll get i guess what three things you'll get the voltage the the output voltage you get the that voltage at a particular current and then also if you're lucky you'll get a regulation figure and that regulation figure tells you the difference between your loaded current and your non-loaded current and that's about what you get you're not they're not gonna you, you will you rarely will you ever get some kind of internal impedance or or coil resistance or anything like that so it's kind of it can be difficult to simulate unless you actually have those figures. But what's interesting is trying to calculate a transformer tap that has series resistance with a bridge rectifier into a capacitor resistor load is, is actually not very trivial. It's, it's pretty difficult. And um, there's, there are some like rules of thumb that you can use, but uh, a lot of times they don't give you super accurate results so we've been kind of trying to figure out like what's our best like attack plan with it and there's there's a couple of like general rules you can use like uh i think i have some written down here like okay so hammond manufacturing if you if you they have like a little pdf chart that's like if you have a bridge rectifier you can use this ratio multiply it times your your VAC, and this is in general what your DC is going to be. But what if I want to be more accurate than that? You know, um, I found in one of my books that I have here, the title of the book is Power Supplies for Valve Amplifiers, written by Merlin Blenkow. On page 38, he's got this really great chart. In fact, I'm going to hold it up so Parker can see it. This really fantastic chart that Basically, you look at your source resistance and your load resistance. That gives you some kind of ratio. Ratio, yeah. And then you you look at, at one of the axes on the chart, and depending on what your reservoir capacitance is and your mains frequency, you can look up on this chart, and it'll give you a pretty accurate um, to within maybe f five, three, five percent uh, your DC voltage without even simulating it. Uh, I wish I could post this picture, but I haven't asked the author for um, permission. I might, permission. I might end up doing that. I have his email address, so I might uh, ask permission for that because it's a really cool chart, and I've never seen this before. Uh, but if you want, if you want to look 
and just say like, okay, what's I have X Y Z transformer. What's my uh, what's my DC voltage going to be? You can look up in this chart, and it'll give you a pretty accurate result. Unless you're doing something, excuse me, like super weird. Like if your source impedance or resistance is similar to your load uh, resistance, in other words, low voltage, high current, you're going to get some pretty terrible um, DC vo uh, values on that. So, and you probably, like, you're not going to really run into that a whole lot anyway. So uh, a lot of the a lot of the equations you find if you go to Google and just type in uh, like bridge rectifier DC equation or something like that, they're, 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 you'll get equations out there, but they're not they're they're accurate within a range. They're not accurate across an entire uh, like they're not always accurate. You kind of have to know your source impedance of what the coil is actually doing, and on top of that, it gets more complex because you got to know your primary coil. Like, so mm -hmm. you have your mains coming in, you have your secondary going out. You have to know all of that in order to be able to actually, like, really predict what your DC output's going to be. And so um, all, all in a nutshell, Josh Rose and I are trying to actually do that so we can burn the least amount of heat in a design that we're doing. Because we don't want to just, like, throw a ton of extra voltage and then have to get rid of it and regulate it down linearly. Because mm -hmm. it's just wasteful, and then you have to design heat sinks and all this other stuff. But if we can get our tap just right, such that we take into account the tolerances of the whole circuit plus the tolerance of mains fluctuation, then we can actually get the DC that we uh, want. Then you will be your your LDO is, will be a lot more efficient. Exactly. Yeah, and I've actually I've found an LDO that has a dropout voltage of five. No, I'm sorry, um, 500 milliamps, so half a volt. And it can provide up to two amps. So it's so if we get our DC values right, we can get really close to that dropout voltage while still taking all the variability into account. And then, you know, we'll add 5 10% or whatever, whatever level of fat tolerance we need in order to get it in there. So it's been really fun and really kind of interesting because, you know, I... I've done a handful of these calculations before, but I've never had to do it to this level of detail. Extent. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're, and, and the thing is, we're trying to actually push these calculations backwards into uh, Josh Roser's uh, Transformer Excel spreadsheet. So we, we said we were going to release this spreadsheet, and um, Josh Roser and I found that there was actually a few small errors in it. So actually, we, we, got, a, uh, we got a message in this week from... Um, from Philip, a guy named Philip, asking, hey, is that available? Can he see it? And I want to make it available, but let me get these calculations into it first. Uh, and then... And, and then make sure it's correct. Make sure it's correct, and then we can... And, and, and we've been actually verifying that what we're doing is correct on uh, uh, based off of simulations and things. Uh, so I've been doing P-Spice, and I have another simulation package to kind of like do this at the same time in conjunction with his spreadsheet, just to make sure that everything's correct. Because what I would love to do is say, I have a load, I want this much DC voltage at this current, uh, you know, push it backwards through the calculator and say, what tap? Uh, yeah, how do you is. design the transformer? Right, and so the transformer is going to spit out, oh, you need this tap, but it results in this much resistance of the coil due to the nature of 
winding it so it'll you know it'll back calculate all of those things so eventually we'll release that and philip whenever we have that available um rev 2 will will certainly put it up there cool yeah sorry that was a lot but it's uh that's been really fun so what's what's the output of all this work josh roger has wanted to make his own guitar amp for a long time uh, okay and he has built four or five for other people but he's never designed one for himself and so i'm stepping him through designing most of it but he wants to he wanted to do the transformers so he wanted like all of it to be him gotcha and, makes sense and the thing is like off the shelf transformers if if you just buy an off the shelf then you're you have to play by their rules you you, you like yeah. they give you the specifications and you it, there you go but if we're winding our own well then we can do anything we want and so we're adding extra features that don't exist in most amps because they just don't have a xyz tap well we do yeah because we can calculate it but in order to calculate it we have to get it right you know so uh that's sort of the overall result of this and in fact he did build one uh well so he we already talked about it but he made an output transformer which totally worked great um and on sunday he just finished his first version of a power transformer and that's actually where we found that everything in not everything uh, a lot of his taps were incorrectly calculated for his power transformer because uh he puts his he puts his meter on it and he was expecting 460 volts or something like that and yeah. it ends up being like 520 and he was like oh shit <laughs> yeah so uh yeah a good handful of the uh the taps were incorrectly done um but a lot of that has to do with the fact that like these kind of like the chart i was showing where it's it's not it's not safe to just assume you know, the square root of two times your VAC, that's what your DC is going to be. Like, if you go to Google and type it in, like, that's a really easy way to describe what happens when you rectify an AC signal, but that's not what you're going to get. It's way more complex than that. And so he had kind of built the simple equations into his transformer calculator, and the result is you get way hotter taps mm -hmm. uh, than they actually need to be. So cool if you fine with getting extra voltage but not cool if you're trying to actually hit a target yeah 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 so well, i'm gonna be looking forward to his uh amplifier when he's finally done with it oh yeah it'll be really cool so i'm imagining josh uh or Roz, he's like digging up like dirt to make iron ore i love that guy to death uh because he would do that he would totally yeah. do that to make his sheet he's, metal. For he's the, the most engineer, non-engineer I've ever met. Like absolutely, <laughs> like he he could have been an engineer, but the stars didn't align for him. Yeah. Cool. On to the RFO. On to the RFO. So this is one that you found. And it's uh, a little ridiculous, I think. Just a little ridiculous, and I just want to bring it up because I, we were looking for RFOs, and I just saw this. I was like, I gotta, I gotta put it on here. The title of this article it comes from Electronics Weekly is uh, Glasgow Tongue has a taste for whiskey, and Electronics Weekly is, I mean, usually their articles are like showcasing some PhD that has done some weird research or talking about some kind of trend in electronics 
or an advertisement for an IC. But when you have an article that says Glasgow Tongue has a taste for whiskey, I'm like, okay, well, I got to check that out. Yeah, you got to click so, that one. Apparently, Glasgow University researchers have made a bionic tongue that can tell the difference between Glenfiddich. Um, I can't even remember how to pronounce this Scottish whiskey. Uh, Lafrag, I'm butchering that. Uh, and Glenmarnock. And the, the, the difference between vintages of each brand of those samples at ages 12, 15, and 18. So, so is this like... I'm going to guess like some professor had those things in his cabinet. Or a professor wanted those things in his cabinet. Oh. So, <laughs> so he, <laughs> he said, I know what our next project is. And of course it has to happen in Scotland because of course. So in general, okay, so, so here's the description from the article. It says, submicroscopic slices of two metals arranged in a checkerboard pattern act as the tongue's taste buds. Despite being 500 times smaller than the taste buds on a human tongue. So the researchers poured samples of whiskey over the bionic taste buds and measured how they absorbed light while submerged. Uh, and then they claim that the tongue was able to taste the difference between the drinks with greater than 99% accuracy. So the, I still think this boils down to they just wanted whiskey. Yeah, so they're using refraction. Uh, I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually like how a uh, your refractometer for you know measuring density of sugar and water, right? Yeah, right. Interesting. So I guess like like just I don't know. They pour whiskey over this tongue, then the computer says it's this sample, and they're like, oh great, and then take a shot, and then pour the next <laughs> sample over it. It's that sample. Great, thanks. If it's correct, <laughs> take a shot. If it's wrong, take a shot. Take a shot. <laughs> How do how do you get how do you get money to do that kind of research, you know? Yeah, I don't know. And why whiskey? Also, like if you're making this tongue, why didn't they do like I don't know. I it's funny. I like that. So. Yeah, how, how I think the good question there is how do you get funding to do a research project like that? I think it's exactly what we were talking about. Either the professor had this, <laughs> the whiskey or he wanted. They're just like, yeah, we need to burn this budget. <laughs> right. If we don't burn this, then we don't get it next year, right? Yeah, I'm I'm reading the comments on this. Oh, there's comments yeah. on it? Oh, I got to check these out. Are they good? Uh, remarkable achievement, but why? I would have happily volunteered to perform the same task. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and you know for the first 20 minutes you can have 99 percent accuracy and then after that it just drops yeah, real, real fast, fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah is it whiskey yes 100 yes. accurate um so the next article is so you want to build a cubesat from the website orbital index um and this is a really interesting article that's kind of like just a collection of like if you read all 800 of these links you can probably make a cubesat there are so many yeah. links on there and uh, actually so uh, al williams who's been on the podcast a couple of times wrote a hackaday article about this and he he has a little a slight bit of snarkiness in the uh in his 
article where he's just like, oh, yeah, to make a CubeSat, you just make a frame, and then you make a processor, and then you make a battery, and then you make an antenna, and then you make <laughs> keeps a... Keeps going. Like, it just keeps going down the line. It's yeah. one of those uh, draw-an-owl <laughs> kind of things. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so at the Fab, we... Uh, gosh, right when we first started the podcast, there was two guys who were making a CubeSat for... Houston, yeah. of Houston? Yeah, U of H project. Yep. Their CubeSat was I don't cool. think it actually went into space. I think there was just like building like the framework and control software for it. If I remember right, they ha it was something like a ton of students at the university were making them and they would pick like two gotcha. and those would go to space. Yeah, I always wondered um, yeah. like how like just how CubeSats you like what you have to design for. Um, apparently, you use a lot of like what they call COTS, which is commercial off-the-shelf stuff um, that works. Yeah, <laughs> spark fun yeah, yeah, and yeah. fruit. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just interesting that the like there's different form factors for CubeSats as well, and like how do you handle power? When like half the time you can't get power because you're on the other side of the earth and the sun. Is it isn't the standard thing for a CubeSat hundred millimeter? I think, yeah, that's like side. a one U, but there's like a two like U and a three U, which is like more of the cubes stuck together. They're just multiples of that. Um Right, right, right. You know how much okay, it, how much does it cost to get I think the last space? time I looked it was about ten grand. Like ten grand? That's actually a bit more than I thought it would be. Yeah, I, I think it's on 10 grand. And you get, like, shot out of a rocket with, like, thousand other ones. Well, maybe not a thousand, like a hundred other CubeSats. Oh, okay. Uh, I just I just Googled it. CubeSat launch cost uh, averages between, well, geez, 10,000 and 500,000. Yep. So, you know, be prepared. Uh, I, it looks like other websites are saying closer. Hey, to Mauser, if you want to sponsor that project, that'd be really cool. Well, here's one. Launch your, launch your satellite for 8,000. What kind of project would we launch with a CubeSat? Like, what would we do with it? Uh, a satellite that constantly plays <laughs> our podcast episodes. It's just blasting meatloaf the entire time. <laughs> Just, hey, yes, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a sat out of hell. <laughs> <laughs> Which I totally bought that album the other day. Uh, so I don't have to play That's it cool. over my phone. Oh, you I bought a vinyl for it? Record. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually, I got really lucky because like it's in really great shape. Oh, that's nice. And uh, no crackles and pops. So somebody bought it at one point. <laughs> they in time played and it once and were like, yeah, that's that's enough for me. <laughs> yeah, that's enough meat for me. <laughs> what would you, okay, so what would you do with a with Yeah, because it's it's one of those like or a cube set. Doing something that no one else has done before. So it's like, oh yeah, so you can put sensors on it and like measure like, are you in a vacuum? Yes. <laughs> um I, I don't I don't really know what I would have because like <laughs> I don't really have an experiment. I guess I'd like to run it. That's in outer space. You know, um, I do like, I want to do, um, like how a uh, high altitude balloon. 
Um, just to take pictures because that's cool. Those are cool. Um, but and that doesn't cost you know ten grand to do. <laughs> um, the most expensive yeah, is, uh, yeah. part of that is is um, uh, the gas. And so yeah, I don't know what I would want to do for an experiment to run because I, I guess I just never thought about it. Like, what would I put up in space? Doom guy. that's so great yeah i i kind of i kind of like i would have the tendency to just have my um satellite look like a thumbs up or something like that so it's just like this giant thumbs up or not giant this really small thumbs up so we had a a crazy idea (laughs) um we came up with this at midwest gaming classic i think like two years ago um but to do like because you know at, at at defcon there's like all these badges that people hack and I thought it'd be really cool. Like, what if you actually had a CubeSat that people had to connect to when it was in range? And we started looking at like the orbital like characteristics. Because first of all, most of the cheap CubeSat stuff, you don't really get to pick the orbit that you go into. Yeah, and you yeah. Just, they, they just, just go into space the, and then they the open the door and it just spills out. Um, and so it's like, so you don't yeah. really get to pick your orbit. Um, well, I guess you can say you don't want to be on that launch. Yeah, well, yeah. I think you could get the purchase pick, your orbit. Well, all right? the CubeSats pretty much go on the same orbit. Because um, they're, they're, they're like secondary oh, they? okay. payload. They're not put... It, they basically have to hitch a ride on the rocket. Um, so the... Right. Basically, it's like, okay, if you could get an orbit that would pass over Las Vegas... Right. But it's like you'd only have like a 10 to 15 minute window and then it's mm-hmm, gone again. Mm-hmm. And then. Right. Right. And they're and they're a low enough orbit that you'd have to have. A yeah. So it's like either to you constant connection. You you have a lot of them, basically. Um, and they're just like a train, basically, of, of CubeSats blasting, um, you know, meatloaf out down to <laughs> down to Vegas. Um or like it's just a window and you have to <laughs> grab the information from the CubeSat when it's over you. Um, it's an interesting idea, but it's also really expensive to try and it probably wouldn't work. Because <laughs> you'd only get that window like a couple times and then it would have moved too far off of its orbit. Um, that would be kind of cool, though, if it was over Vegas for yes. during DEF CON and everyone's trying to hack it. Yeah, at it would the be really time. cool. That that'd be kind of cool. I'm yeah. sure the traffic and the data traffic jam would be. I stupid. think the <laughs> craziest thing would be like you you can't mess it up. Like there cannot be bugs on your satellite because you can't fix it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're not gonna go get it. <laughs> you want to you want to talk about yeah. multiple times the cost yeah. of well that's what they had to do with the Hubble telescope uh, going and getting it yeah they launched it and it had what aberrations in the they they had to like apply yeah. a, a fix to the, the mirror uh, what is it the lens or something like that or the mirror yeah. the mirror in the back was just ever so slightly yeah. off I think that was one of the space shuttles first things that you had know to that, do. that's also that's something that's that like yeah, yeah, that's right. It, 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 it I don't know. I can't remember exactly. Right now. What year was that? I don't know. It was a while ago. But but 
you know, okay, so this whole, like, this mirror in the back of this telescope has to be ever so perfectly aligned and everything. Like, how did you get yeah. it to space without it getting unaligned, you know? <laughs> like, like that's that's not, like, a smooth ride, if you ask. Actually, the thing is that um, Orbital Index talks about, like, having to design your CubeSat to survive, like, a rocket launch. Yeah. Yeah. So they repaired Hubble in December 93. Oh, no. Okay. Then that was not the first thing that the space shuttle did. Yeah. It was was around way before that. (laughs) Yay. We're young. We don't know this. (laughs) Yeah. One of the space shuttles blew up before uh, the year I was born. Very cool. Cool. There's uh so we also found this other website that's uh www.nanosats.eu uh and that is basically a database and a tracker of CubeSats. So if you are like an absolute data analytics nerd and you want to just go see a whole bunch of data or do whatever uh go to that website there's like 2400 satellites that it's tracking data on uh it's also kind of cool because there's just like a, a complete database so if you just want to see what's yeah. up there and like, it's pretty cool stuff what people have sent stuff and i like the this pretty cool. comment here yeah. i believe the big future of nano satellites is still to come but it's like who said that it's a quote yeah, I wonder yeah, if it's a person, it's, it's, Eric. Is that, is that on Eric the front page? Kulu. I bet you that's his quote. We should get him on the podcast. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> missing a meatloaf satellite. I know that there's there. You know, actually, if we it would be great if we went in there and that one's already. I bet there. you there are like, ones what? that play audio. <laughs> and um, I guess you just repurpose one of those to play meatloaf. Ah, okay. So CubeSats, CubeSats are measured in size. Nano satellites gotcha. and Pico satellites are measured in weight. Um, so the database includes nano satellites and Pico satellites also. Even smaller. Oh, there's Femto satellites, ten grams to a hundred grams. That's like just like a, an Arduino Nano just floating around in space. There are a handful of U.S. and Chinese nano satellites about which nothing is publicly known. Interesting. How many how many satellites, man-made satellites that are <laughs> intended, intended to be, to be there. there are in space? <laughs> probably a lot. Probably more than we think there are. I'd probably say like 20,000 maybe. I wouldn't be surprised if there's more. How many satellites are in space? Oh, only 1,886. That doesn't make any sense. There's a well, bigger database on this website than that. Probably. But but they're probably not considering these yep. to be a satellite, you know, proper. Interesting. At least that's what uh, Wikipedia is saying. That doesn't make any sense because, like, the first line yeah, of this Wikipedia article is saying, like, 2018 estimate some 5,000 satellites are in orbit. 
Oh, okay. 1,900 are operational. Yeah, just a lot of garbage floating around. Oh, so there's just garbage floating around. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. So the next last cool. RFO for this week is how to master PCB repairs and why you should. It's an EE web article. And I picked this one. And um, that doesn't sound like maybe because I do a lot of PCB repair, especially for like old automotive stuff. And so it's a lot of stuff that's like kind of like I didn't really learn anything new from this article, but I'm hoping someone will if they read it. Um, but he covers stuff like he's got some good pictures, pretty gnarly pictures on there. Let me pull up the let me pull up the video. You know, one of the things that um, is worth learning at some point in time is repairing traces on boards and not just, like, green wiring. I'm talking about scraping away solder Yeah, he talks about how you do that with, like, copper tape. Mask back. Uh, um, basically, like, you mm -hmm. put down a piece of copper that, that has an adhesive backing, and that's how it sticks to the FR4. Um, I've done that a couple times. Most of the time, I just green wire it. Um, it's because that tends to be faster and easier, especially if you don't need like the board to look back to normal. Um, I'd say the the hard the biggest problem <laughs> right. I run into though is finding out what the part originally was before it went nuclear. Oh, like in the image he has here. One, no, it, one of it's all the magic smoke just, got let out. It puked its guts. Yeah, every ounce of it. I'd actually, I'd be curious to know what, what that actually even is, because to make a component do what's in this <laughs> yeah. image here, well, really it might be a, a MOSFET that hard. failed, you know, open, uh, not failed open, failed closed, uh, shorted, and um, fell short. Th yeah, yeah, that's the thing about SMT FETs is when they fail like that, they tend to unsolder themselves, which is nice. <laughs> but this one kind of went right, right. Ballistic. Yeah. This one bar. This barfed. <laughs> There's like a hole in it. <laughs> so yeah, go if if you haven't done any, you know, PCB uh, repairs or anything like that. Go go check out that article. Um, you know, Steve and I do that stuff all the time, and um, it's it's a skill that I I, I self taught yeah, myself I, that skill. I think you did the same way. So, um, it's, I actually had my, my boss came up to me or, um, late last week and we were talking about doing some, uh, uh, some changes on a circuit board and, uh, we, uh, he basically said, Hey, can we make these changes on this board? And then he stopped and goes, you know what? I've seen what you can do, uh, with, with green <laughs> wires and, and wires He's like, you can do this <laughs> like just because like if you've seen some of my prototypes i yeah, don't yeah, re-spin yeah. a board i just make the board do what i need it to uh it's That's faster what and do. it's easier and cheaper most of the it time it makes it so you can actually test the rest of the yeah. circuit out so. yeah yeah absolutely and especially with analog stuff like sometimes you wired that op amp in an inverting configuration, you wanted a non-inverting. Like, well, I've make it wired, happen, you know. 
uh, op amps with the negative, the positive, and positive negative. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. But that oh, was yeah, because, that like, hot. my schematic yeah, hot. symbol doesn't, <laughs> didn't have a plus or minus on, like, the power pins, and I mirrored it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Fun times. Without mirroring the power supply. Cool. Man, this has been a long podcast. Yeah. So I guess um, we'll wrap up oh, this yeah, podcast. Wow. Okay. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Parker mm-hmm. Dillman. Later, everyone. And Stephen Craig. <laughs>